I wanted to ask you something by way of introduction that may sound like a rhetorical question because I think the answer is pretty obvious, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you ever, ever feel like Christmas has too much pressure associated with it? The pressure comes, I think, from different angles. There's the time pressure of trying to get everything done that needs to get done. There's the social pressure of Christmas events, whether that's at work or at school or among friends, depending on what your different stage of life is. There's the financial pressure that comes from decorations, buying food, buying gifts. There's family pressure of figuring out who is going to do what and when it's going to be done. And that can increase relational pressure depending on who is and isn't getting along, all of which just became heightened with the increased COVID pressure that was just recently cranked up. And then amidst all of that pressure, there is the expectation pressure. The pressure that tells us if we can handle all of the other pressures in the right way, we'll create a magical experience for others, and we'll experience an unforgettable Christmas ourselves that looks like the end of every Hallmark movie that you have ever seen. The messaging we're confronted with all of the time is that we're supposed to feel a certain way, to exude a Christmas spirit, to be merry, to be jolly, to be loving, to be sacrificial, and so on. And trying to conform to this Christmas mold, squeezing us from multiple fronts, is exhausting. It's exhausting to try and fail and then feel various degrees of guilt for our failure. It's exhausting to try and fail various degrees of disappointment. Giving in to this Christmas pressure never seems to deliver what it promises. I mean, if we can pull it off perfectly, we might for a fleeting moment, but it won't last, which is why we're going to feel pressured to do it all again next year. You can tell how tired you are from this treadmill by how much you want to punch the person who says to you on Boxing Day, it's only 364 more days to Christmas. We know you're out there, and we don't really like you that much. So don't be that person. Seriously, though, if you've sincerely had enough, if you're looking for some alleviation from the pressure of this cultural Christmas mold, I hope to relieve some, if not all, this morning with God's help and by His grace. Our problem is that we too easily take our cues from the world around us when it comes to our focus and our celebrations. This morning, I wish to turn our attention to heaven's focus and heaven's celebrations at the first Christmas. Heaven knows best how to respond to the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And from heaven... Earth must take its cues. Heaven knows best how to respond to the birth of Jesus our Savior, and from heaven we on earth must take our cue. From the passage we're about to read together, there are several cues that earth should follow from heaven's response to the birth of Jesus our Savior. And from this, we are still going to feel a pressure but it's a different kind of pressure. The cultural pressure that we feel from this Christmas mold coming at us from all different angles is kind of like the pressure of the old car that gets put into the wrecker at the scrapyard. But the pressure that comes to us from heaven is like that which turns a piece of carbon into a pure and clear and priceless diamond. And from that mold, I believe we will emerge transformed. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1, uh, 2, sorry. We finished chapter 1 in the reading by John and Julia. Thanks for doing that. And we pick up right where they left off. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to work our way through verses 1 to 20 of Luke's gospel as we continue just these uh, narrative accounts of the birth and nativity, the 
coming, the preceding, the following of Jesus' birth. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, to see heaven's response to the birth of Jesus our Savior and the cues that we should take from that. But let's pray before we read the passage together. Would you bow with me and we can do that. Father, I want to thank you for the gift and wisdom that the Lord's Day is, the first day of the week, which we can set apart as different from the regular rhythm of the rest of the week so that we can be together and sing together and pray together and worship together and read your word together, and hear it preached together. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us in these moments where we are still and where we are quiet. There's one voice speaking which is indicative of you are the God who speaks to us, and we listen to you. And I pray, Lord, as your word is preached, that you would help us to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit would say to us in these very moments as your word is opened, and as we hear the truths that are revealed there. So help us, Lord, we pray, to pay attention and to be changed, as only you are able to change us, as we focus our attention on the birth of your beloved Son. To do a work in us, we pray for your glory in the church and for his glory. And this we ask in his name. Amen. Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Brothers and sisters, this again is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the beginning of Luke, at the end of Luke 1, as was read for us, the curtain goes down on the birth of John the Baptist, and rightly so, his being the forerunner of the Messiah, and his birth does not generate the same amount of attention as the birth of our Lord. In the beginning of Luke 2, the curtain goes up on the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And as it does, Luke gives us the historical context of what was going on at this time. On the surface, this explains to us how it is that Joseph and pregnant, very pregnant Mary wound up a hundred miles from their home in Nazareth in the city of Bethlehem for the time of Jesus' birth. But digging a little deeper, what we see is this. Heaven moves earth for the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And from this, we take a cue of great comfort. 
Heaven moves earth for the birth of Jesus our Savior. And from this, there is a cue for us to take great comfort. In those days, Luke writes, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And because of who this decree came from, people obeyed. Which requires us to do a little bit of historical digging to understand who this individual was. And I'm drawing on the research of others here to tell you that Augustus was born in 63 BC. He was the son of Julius Caesar's nephew, which is a name that you might recognize. And his, his given name, Augustus's given name, was Octavian. He joined Mark Antony after the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC to punish and defeat Brutus and Cassius, which are names that you also might know. And he became the sole ruler of the Roman Empire after defeating Antony and Cleopatra in 31 BC. He was granted the title Augustus, which means majestic or holy, and Caesar, of course, means Lord. And this was granted to him by the Roman Senate in uh, 27 BC, after which he reigned with unrivaled supremacy until he died in AD 14. He was the first emperor to encourage a cult to deify his name and his reign, and legends began to be told about where he came from, which were similar to Alexander the Great, that he had been miraculously conceived by a serpent. An inscription discovered and dated at 9 BC hails Augustus, listen to this, as a god whose birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. Another inscription from Halicarnassus, now preserved in the British Museum, celebrates his reign as follows. Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father Zeus and the savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. The productivity of all things is good, and at its prime, there are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present which fills all men so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns to Caesar Augustus. The extent of his rule was and reign was so far reaching that it reached all the way to the little town of Nazareth where Mary and Joseph lived, uprooting them at a very tender time to make an arduous journey on foot, foot or perhaps by animal up to Bethlehem. But these orchestrations of those who held power and influence are marching to a tune that they do not hear nor pay any attention to, which is that of the will of the sovereign and only king who dwells in unapproachable light. As the self-proclaimed deity Augustus directed the known world, the true God was holding Caesar in his hands, directing and turning Augustus how he desired to bring about his purposes. Augustus Caesar fancied himself a king, yet in God's estimation, even the mighty Caesar is but a pawn. And the irony is splendid. Under this great Caesar's nose, a couple to, in his eyes, who would have been no more than peasants, travel unnoticed to the city of King David where the true Savior and Lord of humanity would be born by his own hand. Heaven moves earth for the birth of our Savior, which is a great comfort to us should we pay close attention to the dynamics that are at play here. History shows us, as Scripture does here, that rulers will arise who set themselves up as the ones everyone must depend upon for peace and prosperity and a good future and so on. Part of that inscription at Halicarnassus sounds like every political campaign we have ever heard. And even though they may not, modern rulers might not deify themselves as Augustus boldly did, the outcome is essentially the same. And sometimes said rulers and authorities will issue decrees that inconvenience us terribly. For Joseph and Mary, the timing of this census could not have been any worse. She's far along in her pregnancy, so far along that when they are in Bethlehem, the time comes for her to give birth. 
This journey would not have been easy. There would have been unexpected expenses because of the travel. Normal life and work would have been interrupted. And in all of this, I believe, humanly speaking, there is a good case to be made for uh, by Joseph for staying where they were. Not only was Mary's pregnancy advanced, she was carrying the Son of God, and this should not be put into jeopardy. Yet what sounds to us as unreasonable, risky, inconvenient, and disruptive was actually accomplishing God's purposes. And we should remember this as we reflect back on the last 21 months and in whatever else we might have to contend with as governing authorities make decisions in coming weeks. While there may be legitimate cause for concern, legitimate grievance to express on what has happened and what may yet happen, as God's people, we need to take a step back. For if we do step back, to see here how heaven moves earth, even mighty Caesars for the sake of Jesus our Savior, we don't have to be as unsettled as we maybe have been. Now certainly there are limits on what we should ascribe to from those who are in positions of governance and authority. We do not go along with any commands that uh, forbid something, anything that... um, How do I want to say this? I said it better earlier, but uh, um, anything that uh, is forbidden that God commands or commanded that God forbids is a line that we do not cross. And uh, as a note, I am thankful that here in our own province, our premier has not instituted vaccine passports for churches. Although my heart is heavy and I grieve for our brothers and sisters in Quebec who have to face that reality, and I would encourage you to pray for them. I wrote to our premier yesterday, and I would suggest it might be a good idea to do the same, expressing appreciation that he did not implement vaccine passports for churches and urged that he do, does not go down that road. I cannot imagine, nor will I entertain, a scenario where some of you are turned away from public worship and the hearing of God's word and coming around the Lord's table based on vaccine status. And so, as was said in the summer, I say again, this is not something that I would um, consider implementing here at our church. We have to realize and trust God even in the midst of, that we have to realize that we have to trust God in the midst of all of this. As regards Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, Micah prophesied hundreds of years prior that a ruler would come forth from Bethlehem, a ruler whose coming forth is of old from ancient of days. And the means that God brought used to bring that about was a late pregnancy journey because of a decree of a self-appointed God who wanted to count his people so he could tax them more. These are all the things we grumble against, isn't it? Rulers telling us what to do and where to go and asking more money from us. And when that happens, we have to step back and realize that while all of this is going on, God is sitting in the director's chair and he is calling all of the shots. And if heaven is pleased to move earth for the birth of Jesus our Savior, we can trust that heaven will continue to move earth for the sake of the bride that Jesus came to save. Even if this means we experience circumstances that bring us incredibly low. And surely none can be lower than our Savior in his birth. Not only does heaven move earth for the birth of our Jesus our Savior, heaven humbles earth in the birth of Jesus our Savior. And so our first cue is one of comfort. Our second cue is to be brought low. Heaven humbles earth in the birth of Jesus, our Savior. Luke goes on to tell us in verse 6 that while they were there, that is Mary and Joseph, the time came for her to give birth. Now, as much as we like the drama of our nativity movies and so on that portray that she was getting there, and just as she was getting there, her water breaks and they're scrambling to find a place. Uh, We don't know if that's what happened. It just tells us that while she was there, time came for her to give birth. 
and give birth, she did. In verse 7, to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. On one hand, this is so ordinary. Jesus came as we did. There would have been the pains of labor, the moans of labor, the blood and sweat of labor, a screaming infant drawing his first breath with umbilical cord still attached and then his tiny body and face being wiped to remove the vernix that would have still coated his skin. And as still happens to this day in the same region, it's a living tradition. He would then have been wrapped tight in those swaddling cloths, mimicking the comfort of the womb's tight confines. So ordinary. I like Andrew Peterson's words in Labor of Love. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. It's a normal birth. And yet, though ordinary as far as births go, this was all entirely extraordinary. Extraordinary, given that this was the birth of one who has both a human nature, which was added to his divine nature, the one who is both truly God and truly man. And then to think that he was laid in a feeding trough, in a space where animals were kept, tradition holds in a natural cave, because the guest, the local guest house just did not have adequate room for a woman to give birth. In all of this, heaven humbles earth in two ways in the birth of Jesus, our Savior. Firstly, we are humbled because of what this reveals about our human condition. Philip Graham Ryken writes that the birth of Jesus Christ shows us the depravity of our sin. When God the Son was born in Bethlehem, he was unrecognized and he was unwelcome. There was quite literally no room for him. No one noticed No attention was paid. No preparations were made. And as John puts it, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's 1 John 10 and 11. John 1, sorry, 10 and 11. And this is all especially humbling when we ask ourselves, would we have responded any differently? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, have you responded any differently? Norval Geldenhaus concludes no when he writes, What the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in their ignorance is done by many today in willful indifference. They refuse to make room for the Son of God. They give no place to Him in their feelings, their affections, their thoughts, their views of life, their wishes, their decisions, their actions, or their daily conduct. And what of, what of us who profess to place all of our hopes in the birth of Jesus, our Savior? How welcome is he? What room is there for him day to day? Or do all the other endeavors of life crowd him out so that he does not have prime of place? Apart from a work of God's grace, we will act no differently than those who were alive at the time of his birth. So let us humble ourselves in the face of this humility, asking that God would give us, if we are not Christians, an initial interest in Jesus, our Savior. And if we are already Christians, let us humbly ask forgiveness for the times when scarce attention and little room is afforded this one who came to save us in such a manner. Which brings us to the second way we are humbled in the birth of Jesus, our Savior, His humility humbles us, does it not? The one for whom heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool took on flesh and took up residence in a place where animals would stand around chewing straw and hay. 
Not that they would ever have needed to, but Mary and Joseph would never have been able to use the line, what's the matter with you? Were you born in a barn? Yes. He was literally born in a barn. The way of Christ is the way of humility before glory, and we must never forget this. J.C. Ryle writes, He knew well how unwilling we are to be meanly lodged, clothed, or fed. How we desire to have our children decorated and indulged. How apt the poor to envy the rich, and how prone the rich to disdain the poor. But when we by faith view the Son of God being made man and lying in a manger, our vanity, our ambition, our envy are checked. We cannot, with this object rightly before us, seek great things for ourselves or our children. And this is not the only object before us that teaches us humility. The life of this little infant Jesus wrapped and laid in a manger would one day be taken lifeless from the cross and wrapped once more and lain in a tomb that wasn't even his own. His life humbles us from beginning to end, and we ought to let it so, knowing that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We see as much in heaven's continued response to the birth of Jesus our Savior. While the birth went initially and largely unnoticed by the proud and powerful, the event has heaven bursting at the seams. Heaven moves earth for the birth of Jesus, our Savior. Heaven humbles earth in the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And heaven announces to earth the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And our cue to take from this is to listen. It's to listen. It's to pay attention. There are two aspects to this announcement from heaven to earth. The first is an explanation of the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And secondly, there is a celebration of the birth of Jesus, our Savior. And surprisingly, or perhaps not given the circumstances, while the earth sleeps and Augustus Caesar lies comfortably in his bed and his palace, Jesus' humble birth is communicated to those of humble estate in a majestic way. Verse 8 tells us that in the same region, so on sort of the outskirts of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. As I'm sure you well know by now, these were men who lived outdoors. They were nomadic. They were subjected to suspicion and scorn. The third century rabbi writes about shepherds. There's no more despised occupation in the world than that. And yet, to these lower than working class guys pulling a night shift, an angel of the Lord appears in verse 9. And not only that, the glory of the Lord shone around them And they were filled with great fear. This is the cloud of glory that shows up at different times in redemptive history that that speaks to us about the splendor and the beauty of who God is. That's what's happening here. That's what fills their eyes. And the pattern of angelic visits in Luke's gospel, it continues. Whenever one shows up, there is fear because they are striking beings of light whose appearance always causes humans to tremble. One showed up to Zechariah and told him that his uh, old wife Elizabeth was going to have a son, and then he was greatly troubled about this, and then Mary was greatly troubled at the the angel's announcement to her that she would bear the son, and now it's the shepherd's turn. And like the appearance to Zechariah and Mary, there's also an announcement and a sign. And the angel said to them, Fear not. Those are always the first words, aren't they? And if you can just indulge me in a little bit of an imagination for a moment, what would it, what what do angels think of us? I, I, can't, I just what would the conversation have been like as people see that? I'm assuming that it's Gabriel here who who first speaks to the shepherds. Uh, he he's he looks he's getting ready to head out, and another angel asks, "You heading out again? Yeah, a message for the shepherds this time. What are you going to lead with? Fear not. Yeah, that figures. That's just who we are." It is a grace and comfort that they do speak this way on God's behalf, indicating to those who receive God's word that there is never to be terror. There is never to be fear upon hearing the revelation 
of God about Jesus Christ. To the shepherds, the angel gives good reason for this in the explanation of Jesus' birth. For behold, this is why they're not to fear. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The explanation for why they are not to fear that is given to them is good news, which is where the word gospel comes from. The response to such news is that of exceeding delight. The scope of this good news and great joy is for all manners of people, including the lowest of the low, as indicated by virtue of the shepherds being the first to hear on earth about the birth of the Messiah. And then we have the content of this good news of great joy for all the people, which is the birth of a Savior, Christ the Lord, which is quite a collection of terms and not accidental. Think back for a moment to those inscriptions of the current Roman ruler at the time of Jesus' birth that identified Augustus as God as Son of God, as Savior, and that associated him with peace and hope and good news. Someone writes, significantly, these titles and terms are applied to Jesus in the angelic announcement to the shepherds, declaring Jesus to be the divine alternative to the imperial theology and cult of Caesar. The Savior that humanity needs and has been waiting for, whether recognized or not, has finally arrived. One who would do what no human ruler could ever hope to accomplish, which would be to deliver us from all we needed rescuing from and that we could never conquer on our own. This is a Savior who would save us from our sins, as we heard last week from Matthew 1. This is a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent, saving us from that ancient serpent, the devil. This is a Savior who can rescue us from that last enemy that we all must face, which is death itself. And this is a Savior who can rescue us from falling into the hands of the living God to face judgment, which is a terrifying prospect apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Everything that truly plagues humanity, Jesus has come to rescue us from, hence this good news of great joy. And this one, the angel indicates, is not just Savior, but also Messiah. He is the divine son, the anointed king. It's not Octavian or any subsequent Caesar that would come after him. It's the person of Jesus. And significantly, as a careful look at the angel's words indicate, he is not merely the Messiah of the Lord. This Savior, this Messiah, is the Lord himself. The same word that's used to speak about God up to this point in Luke is now used to speak about Jesus. This coupling, as others have noted, was the first time that the words Christ and Lord had ever been brought together. It was an unprecedented combination, meaning that the promised and anointed Savior was none other than God himself appearing in the flesh. Now, in addition to heaven's explanation of the birth of Jesus, our Savior, There is this outward and upward celebration over the birth of Jesus, our Savior. We see that in verse 13. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When we were talking about this passage at our pastoral meeting this week, and I know some of you saw that we went off-site for our meeting this week to just unwind a little bit, enjoy one another's company, and we went bow shooting, which was a blast. But when we were talking about this passage, we did do some work when we were there. This is me justifying that, but I'm just kidding. I'm not not really feeling any need to do that whatsoever. But while we were there, Brian brought up the Lion King. I think a lot of you, if not most of you, have probably seen 
the movie and you know the scene where Simba is born and, and the future king is presented to those that he would rule over. And from all across the plain, all of the animals come to celebrate and bow before this infant cub who is held high on top of pride rock as the sun crests the horizon and the rays fall on him. Well, this is the heavenly version. At the birth of Jesus, our Savior, though most of humanity is completely ignorant, heaven is not. The angels, more than can be counted, are crowding at the threshold between heaven and earth, and they burst through the veil, and the shepherds take in the sight, looking from one direction to the other, and all they can see is the whole of heaven's army, surrounded by the cloud of God's glory, taking up momentary residence outside of Bethlehem to praise Yahweh for the marvel, for the wonder of the Son of God taking on flesh to be the Savior of the world. You know that angels are absolutely captivated by this theme, right? If there was Netflix in heaven, the angels would binge watch documentary after documentary of God's redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ. They can't get enough of it. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.12, that the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you are things into which angels long to look. And they are not even the recipients of this salvation. And so if the angels render to God glory for this pinnacle event of Jesus' birth, how much more so us who are the recipients of the peace that God freely bestows on those he is pleased to do so according to his sovereign grace. God is a God of peace. And Jesus is his peace child sent to reconcile enemies of God such that we would be called his friends. Sent to adopt what were formerly children of wrath, that we might be called sons and daughters. The birth of Jesus is good news of great joy because it will mark an end of the hostility of humanity towards God for all who receive God's Son. This is a striking, undeserved offer of peace and one I believe that we need to park on Because if anything, these last 20 months have taught us how desperately we need this peace of God in our lives. Life has been so unsettling of late, hasn't it? I feel it. We've lived on 24-hour news cycles and latest updates on who's responding which way to what, which when mixed with different narratives and conflicting research and opinions have bred division and contempt for others like few have ever experienced. We're frayed at the edges and maybe even more so at the center. We're unsettled, our patience is thin, our tolerance is reaching its limits, we're exhausted from all of it, and lo and behold, we're not done. So I thank God that it's almost Christmas because it's forced me and it forces us to recognize this. Nothing that is happening right now actually has the capacity to rob us of the peace that comes from Christ unless we let it. If we are thinking that what we're supposed to experience at Christmas is connected in any way with who we're with or where we go or what we do or what we get, we're missing the whole point. The peace that we can know and experience this very moment is first and foremost a peace with God, which He made by the blood of his son, who we read, lie, read about lying here in the manger.
And because of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ, this, is, this enabled the Apostle Paul to write this, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And what, I ask, of our present circumstances can take that away from us. And flowing from that peace with God, which is where the experience of true peace must begin, flowing from peace with God, we can have inner peace. Because of the good news of the birth of Jesus, our Savior, our sins no longer cry out against us. The blood of Christ is sufficient to quiet our conscience and quiet the self-condemnation of our hearts and quiet the accusation of the evil one or any who would speak with his voice, even sometimes when that's ourselves. And what, I ask, of our present circumstances can take that away from us. And then flowing from this peace with God, which translates to inner peace when we understand what he's done for us in Christ, then, then we can begin with God's help to strive to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends upon us. God has shown us how to make peace. There's no really more greater lessons to learn other than what has already been demonstrated by the peace he made at the cross. We know both the justice and mercy of God demonstrated when Jesus died. We know peace with God from humbling ourselves in acknowledging our sin and asking forgiveness. If we have sought that from God, then we already know how to seek it from others. If there are those that we have sinned against and that we are at odds with, well, what do we do? We humble ourselves and we go to them and we ask for their forgiveness. We don't just say we're sorry. That's not enough. We're so used to asking God to forgive us and then strangely, when it comes to our horizontal relationships, it's a word that we don't use nearly often enough. But we go and we seek forgiveness. And we put ourselves at the mercy of another just as we put ourselves at the mercy of God. And then we leave the matter with Him. We also know what great mercy we have been shown in the debt that God has canceled as a result of the death of His Son. And so knowing the greater debt we have been forgiven, with God's help we can extend the forgiveness of lesser debts to those who have sinned against us. We already know. And do you see how all of this flows from the God of peace? We have peace with him, which translates to inward peace, which by God's grace spills out in, from our lives into the lives of others so that we have peace horizontally as well as vertically as well as internally. And again, I ask, what of our circumstances can remove this peace from us? Someone has written, as Christ is honored and has given admission to human lives, to that extent, the peace on earth, which he came to bring, becomes a glorious actuality. Insofar as people live outside him, the earth remains in a state of disorder and strife, without real peace. But when we do taste and see the goodness of this peace from God through the child in the manger, then our response to his birth begins to look more and more like the response of heaven. When the events of the first Christmas begin to affect us, earth imitates heaven's response to the birth of Jesus our Savior. And so our fourth cue then is to do as heaven does. Heaven announces, proclaims, Heaven celebrates. That's our cue. 
We see that in verses 15 to 20, where the shepherds, no doubt rubbing their eyes from the heavenly light show and choir, we read in verse 15 that when the angels went away from them into heaven, they said, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When the angel told the shepherds about the sign of this good news of great joy, it was a command, it was an invitation, go and look, go and see, go and find. And they did quickly. There is obedience here. And no wonder they went with haste at the prospect of a lowborn king for lowly people such as they were. And then we are told in verse 17, if you look there, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them. This is the first mark of earth imitating heaven's response to the birth of Jesus our Savior, its proclamation. We tell other people. Though we don't look with physical eyes upon the the scene that the shepherds did, we do look with the eyes of faith. And when we see the marvel there that the shepherds did, we will be unable to keep from relaying to others who it is that lay there and what it means for everyone who will receive him. The shepherds were like your annoying neighbors at three in the morning who play really loud music. It's just, this happens at nighttime, and did they just walk through the streets just yelling aloud at what they had seen and what had happened? And I don't know, but they told people immediately. And be encouraged at what this proclamation produced. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. When we begin to proclaim to others the birth of Jesus and everything that it meant and everything that followed, it makes people start to think. We're not told here what the outcome of all of this wondering was and all of the people that the shepherds communicated to, but this is a very, very good beginning. We want people to begin to think and wonder and chew on the reality of the birth of Christ. And the only way that happens is if we tell people. We can also be encouraged to continue to ensure that Jesus' birth is proclaimed for those who already do believe because on the one hand, it produces wondering in verse 18 among people in general, but in verse 19, we read that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. When we ensure that the good news of Jesus is spread and communicated and proclaimed, what happens is that those who already are trusting in him, they just tre- they, they treasure him all the more. And they continue to think through and wrestle with all of the things that they've not yet fully come to terms with. That's what's going on here in Mary. She's delighting in what is happening, no doubt greatly encouraged that having just given birth, shepherds are coming because the sky was filled with angels and she's hearing all about it. And what a wonder, what a treasure, what a marvel to think about what Christ is, is what's already happening because of Christ. But it's not all sunk in yet. And she continues to turn it over in her mind. And that's what proclamation does. This is why we don't just preach to people who are not Christians on the Sunday morning because we want to go deeper and farther in in our understanding of who Jesus is. And so our first mark of imitating heaven, of taking our cue from heaven's response to the birth of Jesus is proclamation. And I'll say this, brothers and sisters, if you are looking by, by, with the eyes of faith into that scene and you walk away and we, or we walk away and we never tell anyone a thing about it, we really have to ask ourselves if we understand what it is that we're seeing there at all. They couldn't contain themselves and neither could heaven. And we need to take our cue from this. 
Additionally, the second mark is that the shepherds imitated heaven in that outward and upward worship. Heaven proclaimed, heaven worshipped God most high. And in verse 20, that's what the shepherds do. They returned to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. It's no accident, is it, that Christmas, uh, that the birth of Jesus, rather, has, uh, has produced so much Christmas music? I mean, there's Mary's song, and there's Zechariah's prophecy, and there's Elizabeth's greeting. There's just, there's so much joy. There's the angels filling the night sky outside of Bethlehem. It's produced so much music, and rightly so. For in this, we have words and tunes to lift our voices, our hearts, our minds, our souls, to express to God glory and praise for all that he has done which began with heaven and resounds on earth to this very day. And brothers and sisters, there is plenty of opportunity yet for you to join in the never-ending chorus that started with the angels and reverberates down to the present. Come later. If you weren't planning on coming uh, later today at 4 or 7, change your plans. I was here last night, and it was such a blessing to enjoy the gifts that God has given to people that we know, to be able to sit still and be quiet and just listen to the scriptures, to the songs that enlarge our soul as they direct us to this child whose birth we celebrate. If that is lacking, then carve out the time and the space to be here later today or in Christmas Eve at 4 or 6 or on Boxing Day for another Sunday focused on the coming of our Lord and take your cue from heaven to give glory to the God, to God in the highest. This is the mold. This is the pressure that we want to be shaped and transformed by.